At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, from Him, through us, for all, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. I don't know if you've heard the story, but um, many years ago, and whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that something like this has happened. But a, young, a little young man on a Sunday goes up to his father very excitedly and says, Daddy, can I have some money for the offering at church today? And of course, the father was just excited that his little boy would, would come to him and ask him for an offering. So, and this is many years ago, so he gives him two quarters. One for the offering at church and one for him to spend any way he wishes. And so as they're walking to church, which was just a couple of blocks away, he's playing with his quarters and one of them slips from his fingers and drops to the ground, rolls down the street and falls into a grate. At which point the little boy looks up at his father and then looks up at heaven and says, Oh Lord, there goes your quarter. <clears throat> Sometimes we have that same kind of mentality when it comes to being generous with God, don't we? We have the eagerness, we have the excitement, we have the readiness, we have the desire to do something and give something for the Lord, but something happens. It falls out of our hands. Disturbances occur. We forget. Life happens, right? And that desire and that readiness, that eagerness to give to the Lord somehow gets put on the back burner and, and we forget. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 8. We're in a third, the third week of a series we started two weeks ago um, called Overflow, from him to us for all. And we've been looking at these two chapters, chapters 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and we've been looking at how we as a church can be generous, how we can be generous with everything that God has given us. And, and we saw two weeks ago the example of Macedonian church who gave beyond their means. And last week we really looked at how Jesus, who was rich, chose to become poor for us so that we who were poor could become eternally rich. You remember that, I hope. But today, we're going to come to our third message, starting in verse number 10. And we're going to look at this combination of giving and partnership. Giving and partnership. And the big idea I want to leave with you today is that giving excels when there is reliable partnership. Ready giving excels with reliable partnership. God calls us to generous living. That's what God calls us to. If you haven't learned anything in the last two weeks, hopefully you've learned that. That God calls us to live generously. But on, on top of that, he calls the leaders of our church, this congregation, Woodside, to be responsible, to be accountable for your generosity. So the question is, how does that work? How does that happen? And so the passage we're going to look at is going to look at those two distinctives, how we can fulfill our eagerness to give and to be generous, but also how does the church then become accountable and be honorable and be above board with your generosity? And so in order to do that, I want to share with you two truths that come from verses 10 through 24. And the first is that we must fulfill 
our eagerness. We must fulfill our eagerness. Let me read for you just verses 10 and 12 for you. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. And so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So Paul here continues to encourage the church to be generous, to give. The whole point of these two chapters is to motivate, to re-engage with this church, to give to the work that started a year ago. A year ago, and you can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul had this desire to take up a collection from all of the Gentile churches to take back to the, uh, to the Christians who were in Jerusalem who were undergoing a severe famine. They didn't have food. They were struggling under the persecution from the other Jews who didn't like them. And so they were struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to survive. And Paul had it on his heart to take up a collection to take back to those Christians to help meet their needs. And so Paul here tries to re-engage and rekindle that collection that occurred. But the problem is, and if you remember uh, over the last two weeks, we had a problem in this church that Paul had to address. There were false teachers and super apostles, right? Super apostles who had infiltrated this church and, and they had started to teach wrong doctrine and, and steered this church away from their love for the apostle Paul. And so Paul had to write a severe letter, a letter which we don't actually have anymore. It's been lost to us. But he wrote a severe letter, and he sent it with the, in the hands of Titus to this church to help correct that false teaching, to help redirect the church back to focus on God, and to help restore the relationship between the church and with Paul. Well, the good thing is that that letter worked. Titus was well-received. That letter brought about repentance the Corinthian church did uh, respond graciously to that letter and did, in fact, try to make um, that discord that they had with the Apostle Paul, they tried to fix it. And so that letter, having been received, now Paul sends this letter again called 2 Corinthians, we have in our Bibles, to be able to rekindle and to re-engage with that giving that they started a year ago. So what we learn in verses 10 through 12 is that the church is eager. The church has a desire, has a willingness to give to this effort, but they just haven't gotten anywhere through it, right? They've just put it on the back burner and they haven't done anything with it. And so that brings up a principle I want to make sure I leave with you, and that is eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. Did you hear that? Eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. There's a lot of good things we're eager for. There's a lot of things we have desired to do, but if we never carry it out, what good is it? Is it any good? Does it do any good? Telling my children to clean their room and coming back a week later and finding it still in the same chaos state that it was in, did it do any good? No. Going on a diet. Maybe I shouldn't go there. Or let's, yeah, let's skip that one because that's, that's too personal. Um, you hear about some children in Thailand or India, and it stirs something in your heart. And you said, hi, Lord, I want to do something for them. But you never give, and you never go on that mission trip, or you don't even pray for them. 
What good did the desire do? Eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. And so the Apostle Paul wants desperately to not let the desire of this church go to waste. And so he encourages them to give, to be able to be generous and to give. But I just want to make sure you understand the flip side of, of this statement is also true. That giving without the right motivation is also meaningless. So if I were to buy some flowers for my wife and I gave it to her and I said, imagine, this doesn't happen, but imagine I said to her, I bought these flowers for you because I'm afraid of you. I am, but just go with me. She's sitting there. Don't, don't tell her that. Would that go over very well? Or I bought you these flowers because I felt I had to. If I'm not dead by the time those words leave my mouth. Or I bought you these flowers because I love you and I really, really needed to buy these flowers for you. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a difference in those three statements, isn't there? One of them keeps me alive. The others don't. <laughs> but the point is, giving without the right eagerness, without the right motivation is also meaningless. And so when we give and when we're generous, that generosity must also be coupled with the right motivation behind it because motivation is vastly important. It's hugely important when we give, especially when we give to the Lord because our motives talk about the state of our heart. And so both of these things matter. Eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. Fulfillment without the right motivation is also meaningless. But Paul's not done yet in these verses. He also talks about that when we give, we give out of a proportion to what we have. I want you to just look at verses 11 and 12 for just a moment. Let me just read them for you and just emphasize some words here. He says, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You see, Paul isn't asking them to give beyond their means. And now two weeks ago, we talked about a church that did do that, right? The Macedonian church gave way beyond their means. But Paul didn't ask them to. Paul didn't coerce them to do that. They did that out of their own free will, spirit-motivated, grace-led, praise God for Macedonian churches. But to this church, Paul says, give in proportion to what you have. Don't give beyond your means. Paul isn't, and if you'll forgive the pun, trying to rob Peter to pay Paul. That's not his intention. His intention is not to take from the Corinthian church who has an abundance to allow the Jerusalem church to live at ease. That's not his point. His point is give in proportion to what you have. It's never about giving beyond that. And I know you hear about televangelists and others who say, just give and God will give back to you. Just send that last dollar you have. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, and you can read it here, give according to what you have, not based on what you don't have. But many people ask the question, well, how much should I give? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? What's the right percentage? 
The truth is the Bible actually, now here's this, you're, you're going to be upset with me, it doesn't tell us. You're going to say, oh, but it does because the tithe in the Old Testament is 10%. Well, if you really study the Old Testament, you'll find out that the children of Israel paid somewhere between 25 and 28%. <clears throat> so if you want to talk Old Testament, come on down. We'll, <laughs> we'll be happy to talk. But in the New Testament, we don't have a rule. We don't have a guideline. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because God wants us to understand that everything belongs to God. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says what? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. Everything that we are, everything that we own, everything that we see belongs to who? Yeah, it belongs to God. And God has entrusted to you and to me Things in our life, we get to be stewards of these resources. And what we really ought to be saying is, Lord, all of this belongs to you. And you've just entrusted them to me. So direct me to give out of these resources as you want me to give for the sake of your name. And so that's all wonderful because it's good on paper. In reality, that's not the way it works, is it? You know, I don't know about your children, but my, my children, right after the goo-goo and gaga phase is over and mommy and daddy words come out of their mouth, the next word they learn is what? Do you know? Well, no, yes, mine! Mine! At least that's what my children did. Why mine? Because they don't want to share. <laughs> they don't want to give up what they think is theirs. Now, they didn't buy it. <laughs> daddy and mommy bought it for them. But as far as they're concerned, whose is it? Mine! <clears throat> And yes, we grow up. And yes, we learn to share because we're told to, right? And yes, we figure out how to live with one another. But we really never truly grow out of mine, right? Yeah, I know the earth is the Lord's. I know it's all his, but it's mine. And that's the reason it's hard to figure out what do we give to God? Because if it's mine... <laughs> You guys realize it's a lot easier to give somebody else's money away? You, you, would you agree? So if you recognize that it's all God's, <laughs> all right, Lord, what do you want? Where do you want to give it? I got all this stuff. It's yours. I'm looking to give it away. What do you want me to do with it? It's a lot easier. When we get to that point, we'll understand how much we need to give. But let me also say something I said two weeks ago when I preached the opening message not here at a different campus. God is not so much interested in what and how much you give. God is more interested in how much of you is in the gift. Let me say that again. God is not so much interested in how much you give. He's more interested in how much of you is in the gift. Because God is not after your money. It's all his anyway. He's after you. He's after your heart. He's after all of you. And that's the price he paid on Calvary. And that's what we sang this morning. We surrender all to him. Yeah, but not my bank account, Lord. That's, that, that, that one's mine. Remember that word? Mine. No, no, no. I surrender all. Because he is so worthy of our praise. He's so worthy of everything. And some of you, you're like, oh, no, here we go. Look, I'm not looking for a collection. We as a church are not taking a collection. There's no campaign. There's no building project. There's nothing. This is just helping us as a church 
live generously. Amen? Okay. So give in proportion to what God has given us. But there's one more principle in these verses that Paul gives us, and that is that when we give, our giving must be equitable. <clears throat> our giving must be equitable. And if you look at verses 13 to 15, let me just read these verses for you. Verses 13 to 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see, Paul's aim is fairness. It is not, as some of your translations may have, equality. There's a vast difference. Equality says you and I make the same money, we drive the same old car, we live in the same kind of house, we wear, everything is the same. It's the Marxist idea, right? Or communism. The problem with the Marxist and communism idea is it's not voluntary, is it? It's forced, and you are forced to give it to somebody else, namely the government, who will then decide how to distribute what you have. What the Marxist and communist idea fails at is you can't change the human heart, and it's not based on love. Paul here is telling us to be equitable because it's motivated out of love. Equity, as opposed to equality, says that if I have more than I need and you have a need, then I have an obligation to give you out of my excess to help meet your need. Did you follow that? That's equity. In this case, at least the case that Paul is writing to, the Corinthian church has the excess. They have the abundance. The Jerusalem church has the need. And so the fairness equation or the equity that Paul is trying to bring out is that Corinthian church, take out of your excess and help those who have a need. Because the flip side of equity is reciprocity. And what is that? Because today it's the Corinthian church that has the abundance and the Jerusalem church that has the need. But there may come a day when the roles are reversed, when the tables are turned. And when that, and if that ever happens, you, Corinthian church, would want the Jerusalem church to meet your need when you have that need. Does that make sense? Equity, reciprocity, Paul is interested in fairness, all because he wants to get this church to complete what they started, to give according to what they had promised to give. And Paul ends here in verse number 15 with a quote from Exodus chapter 16. If you remember Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites had left Egypt and they had crossed through the Red Sea miraculously. Then they were marching through the desert on the way to Mount Sinai. And on the way, they, they, they ran out of food. And so they cried out to God and God rained down this fluffy, white, grainy stuff that they woke up in the morning to. And they looked at it and said, what is it? And in fact, that's what they named it. They named it manna, which means, well, what is it? And they learned how to make manna cakes and manna bread and manna cotti and manna casserole and manna everything. For 40 years, they were experts in manna making. And they were told, gather as much as you need every morning, but don't keep any for the next day. And so what 
verse 15 here tells us is that whether you gathered a lot or whether you gathered a little, everyone had enough. Everyone had enough. But there were some, if you read Exodus chapter 16, who looked at that and said, I don't know if God's going to be faithful tomorrow. So we're going to keep a little more in store. And so they, they kept a little more in a jar. And the next day when they went to open it, what did they find? Well, it had some blue fuzz on it and some maggots running around. And it stunk to high heaven. What's, what's Paul's point? God provides each and every day. His faithfulness is new every morning. Hasn't it been new this, today? Maybe. You're here. You're alive. Praise God. God has been faithful. God continues to provide. His point is that in the desert, God provided miraculously. Today, God gives abundance around the world, and when we see a need, he expects us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to meet the need. And that's why he gives us abundance. And that's the point, that God doesn't give us, give us or prosper us with more so that we can indulge ourselves. He gives us more so that we can share with those who need. In fact, Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says it this way, God pr prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God doesn't prosper me to raise my standard of living. God prospers me to raise my standard of giving. I hope and pray that those words sink deep down into your soul, because Jesus, who gave us everything, who was so generous with us, asks us to now be generous in return with the resources that he has entrusted to us. So with the church family, not only does our generosity matter, but that how that generosity is handled also matters. And that's what Paul now pivots to, starting in verse number 16. You know, so in verse number 16, all the way through the end of the chapter, Paul is now concerned with the follow-through of our reliability, with reliability, that we must follow through with reliability. You know, today, we live in a world where everybody's asking us for money. Churches ask for money. Nonprofit organizations ask us for money. Our alma mater asks us for money. Everybody asks us for money. But that wasn't true in the first century. It's, it's really an unknown. It's, it's a new thing. And so when Paul is, is asking this church to give to help these people, it's a new thing. And as he writes these words, he's also cognizant of the fact that the relationship between Paul and this church is on shaky grounds. They've just repented of their false teaching. They've just tried to make amends with the tension that they had with the Apostle Paul. So he makes and frames this appeal very carefully. He wants to help get this church to understand that Paul isn't interested in just lining his pockets. And by the way, the false teachers and the Super apostles who were in the church, that's what they were doing. They were pilfering from the church and lining their own pockets. And so Paul wants to distance himself from these people. And so he wants to make sure this church realizes that what he's trying to do with this collection is above board and honorable. And so he's going to spend the rest of this chapter now trying to help convince this church and, and us that he is truly honorable. He has honorable intentions with this money. And so in order to do that, he starts in verse number 16 by drawing attention to someone. Notice what he says. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. 
For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So Paul draws attention to Titus. Titus was a, was a young man that Paul led to the Lord, that Paul discipled and mentored. We know many of that, much of that, because of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus. In fact, later in his, his life, Paul sends him to Crete to be the pastor of the church in Crete. Again, all of this we know from the letter written by Paul to Titus. So Paul knows Titus very, very well. But Titus is also known to the church in Corinth. If you read earlier parts of 2 Corinthians, you know that Titus was the bearer of the severe letter that Paul had written. And so Titus took this severe letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians welcomed him warmly, received him. And so the Corinthians know Titus very, very well. And notice what Paul says about Titus in these words. Notice that Titus has a heart of concern for the people, for the church. He's not interested in the money. He's interested in the people. And God has given him a heart so much so for these people that he's volunteered to go. By the way, travel in the first century isn't like travel today. You don't just get in a car or, or get in a plane and get to where you're going. You're traveling dangerous territory. So when you're thinking about travel and taking this much money, this isn't a small deal. This is a big deal because times were not like it is today. You can't just write a check. So they're taking money far away. And so Paul puts forward Titus, his champion who will handle the money. But not only Titus. Notice in addition to Titus, Paul talks about two others. Notice verse number 18. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So not only is Titus going, but this brother is going, a brother whose name we don't know, but for some reason he's famous. This guy is famous for preaching the word of God. Who that is, we have no idea. Lots of commentators have lots of opinions, but the long and the short of it is, we don't know. Paul chooses not to give us his name. But what we do know, he's a preacher of God's word. He has a heart for God's word. He has a heart for God, and he has a heart for people. And if you notice these, ver these verses, he was selected by the churches, most likely the Macedonian churches, to be their representatives to go with Paul and Titus for gathering this collection. So this is a man put forward by the local churches to be the bearer, to, to go with Paul, to go with Titus, to make sure things are above board. But that's not enough. Two is not enough. Notice verse 22. If you'd skip down to verse 22, Paul goes on to say, And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is a third brother, another unnamed brother. Again, the way he's written this, it's another man selected from among the churches to be their representative. So we have two representatives from the churches 
and we have Titus, three men, the start of a finance committee, right? But notice, there's no talk about accounting or degrees or the ability to handle money. What you see is a heart for God and a heart for God's word as the primary concern for these three brothers. And so Paul, joined by these three brothers, are going to take this collection from all these churches, including Corinth, and take it to Jerusalem. So why is Paul taking such great pain to talk about all of these people who are going to join him in the collection and the taking of this money to help the Jews and to help the Christians in Jerusalem? Well, I'm really glad you asked, because the answer is in verse number 20. If you go back to verse number 20, Paul says, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. You see, Paul wanted to give no one the ability to point a finger at him to say, Ah, see, look. You took the money. It's your fault. He didn't want to give anyone a reason to blame him or his ministry or his calling because of how he was handling the money. He wanted to be meticulous with the generosity of these Gentile churches. And so he's taking great pains to seem to be above board and to be honorable with the money that's been given. And so these three men who are coming with Paul help create a bond of accountability for Paul and for these churches so that these churches know that this money isn't going to line Paul's pockets, but is in fact going to get to Jerusalem where it was intended. And so Paul, you, you know Paul, Paul is always taking great pains to talk about the fact that he's not in it to please the people. He's not doing it to, to be seen by people. He's doing it to glorify God. But when it comes to money, he desperately wants to make sure he's right both with God and with man. Why? Because he wants to avoid all appearances of evil. Because perception and ministry go hand in hand, don't they? How many ministries do we know or how many ministers do we know who have fallen or have had their ministry cut short because of the way they handled finances. I remember reading the autobiography of Billy Graham many years ago, and you know when he was you know early on in his ministry, he'd you know take up those collections during his crusades, and all of that money that came in, some of it went to meet his needs and the needs of his traveling partners. And, and as the ministry grew and as the size of the crusades grew, his expenses grew, and so did the size of his offerings. And so, looking at the money that was coming in he recognized that the way he handled this money was important. The way he dealt with it was vitally important. And so he got a group of pastors, older, wiser pastors together, and he created a a board of Christian pastors who would then handle this money, that every dollar that came in through the Crusades would go to this group of men who would count it. He put himself and his staff on a fixed salary, he allowed his, his organization and his own finances to be audited every year and made it part of public records so that anybody could go and take a look at them. For his entire life, and even now, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Crusade has been a model of integrity. Wouldn't you agree? A model that you know when you give to that organization, you're giving it to the Lord, and it will be used for the glory of God. 
Folks, when you give to Woodside Bible Church, we take your generosity very seriously. I want you to know that whether you give in one of these boxes in the back or you give online or you give in any of the other ways that you're able to give, we take your generosity very seriously. You know, Pastor Andrew doesn't know how much you give. The elders of this campus don't know how much you give. I don't know how much you give. But there are a group of men and women who are dedicated to be together, to hold each other accountable, to count and to document and to track the money that's coming into this campus. And that's not just here at this campus. That's at every campus, all 14 campuses. All of the money is tracked. There's no one walking out the door with your money. All of the money that is counted is given to somebody else to deposit, and then somebody else writes the check. Nobody has it all. It's all broken up with systems of accountability in place because we as a church want to make sure your generosity isn't lost, isn't violated, and that we are honorable and accountable both to God and to you for the resources that you continue to so graciously give back to the church. And so Paul here wants to do the same thing with this church, that he wants to demonstrate his honorability and his partnership with the church, and so do we. We at Woodside want to do the same, that we are honorable with the money you've given us and to be in partnership with you so that you know exactly where this money is being spent. By the way, that's a great place maybe for me to invite you to the annual celebration, which is on May 16th, I believe where we will talk about the budget of the church and we'll talk about the elders of the church and we'll talk about who's on the finance committee. So if you want to know more and want to understand some of the business aspects of the church, come to the annual celebration, which is in about two weeks, and you can get to see a business meeting unlike any you've seen before where we really celebrate the goodness of Almighty God through his people and through his generosity in the life of this church. And so I'm running out of time, so let me close quickly with two points of application. And the first is, pray for your leaders. Pray for the senior pastor, Pastor Chris Brooks. Pray for Pastor Andrew. Pray for the elders and the deacons and the life group leaders of this campus. Pray for them. Why? Because we are, have been entrusted a, a serious amount of responsibility that we want to be honorable with all that we have been entrusted both with your generosity as well as with the Word of God. Pray that we never veer from the Word of God. We live in a culture where the Word of God is seen as dangerous, some seeing it as irrelevant. Pray that our leaders never veer from this truth, that we never drift from the mission that God has placed before us. Pray that we stay together in partnership keeping each other accountable, holding each other up in prayer so that we don't drift. The second application I want to leave with you very quickly is finish what you started. That's what Paul's point has been to these Christians in Corinth. You've had the eagerness, you've had the desire, now fulfill it. If I can just borrow a phrase from Nike, just do it. That's what Paul is saying. And so what I'd like to ask you is, what has God been asking you to do? What has God been asking you to give? Where has God been dealing with you in this area of generosity? Perhaps to open your home, perhaps go on a short-term mission trip, perhaps to give a little bit more than you've been giving. I don't know. I don't know where God has been dealing with it. But whatever it is, if there's that eagerness, if there's that readiness to do something, 
Paul's challenge to you and to me is finish it. Because eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. Just do it. What are we waiting for? Let's remember that God, who was so eternally rich, chose to become poor so that we who were poor might be eternally rich. Friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, that's where it starts. Because all of this that we've talked about doesn't make any sense until you come to know him as Savior. That Jesus came from heaven to earth, leaving all of his glory behind so that he could live among us with no place to lay his head. But ultimately, that was so that he could go to a cross so that he could die for you and for me. If you have not come to that place in your life where you have said, Lord, I place my faith and trust in you, why don't you do that today? Eagerness without fulfillment is meaningless. Having a desire to accept him but never accepting him is also meaningless. So may I encourage you to come. Come and put your faith and trust in him. Repent from your sins and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done, but I cling to you and I ask you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And the moment you say those words, he will come and take up residence in your heart. You will be saved. But friends, for all of you who have experienced the richness of God's grace transacted for us at the cross, let's live in the realization that it all belongs to him. That he owns it all. That we are stewards who have been asked to give and distribute for the sake of his glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.